it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. Welcome to Wednesday, June 8th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson from New York City. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. We air every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. We encourage you to tune in for those three hours, right if you can. If you can't for the whole time, we have a podcast, and that is free on demand every day at GuyBensonShow.com. That is where all of your program needs can be met. GuyBensonShow.com. I'm a Fox News contributor. I'm the political editor of TownHall.com. I host this show, of course. Tonight, I'll be on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox News Channel. We've got some competition tonight. Jimmy Kimmel's got President Biden. Wouldn't it be fun if we still won in the ratings? We'll see. It's tough to go up against the president, especially since he never gives interviews. Anyway, it's 11 o'clock Eastern, Fox News Channel. Fun panel as well, so set your DVRs. We'll be on. Here on the radio, listen to this lineup. Katie Pavlich later this hour. Former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr in the next hour. He'll be here in studio. Also in our middle hour, U.S. Senator Mike Lee just had a birthday out with a new book. He will be here. And then Tom Bevan talking about last night's elections, especially out in California, and just dreadful new polling for President Biden and what that means for Democrats. We'll get into electoral politics and look at those numbers with Tom in our final hour, the happy hour, here on The Guy Benson Show. But we begin the program with a Fox News alert. A chilling story out of the Washington, D.C. area developing today. An armed man from California has been arrested and detained near the home, the private residence in Maryland, of U.S. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Here's the story from FoxNews.com. An armed man was arrested near the Maryland home of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh Wednesday morning. Law enforcement sources confirmed to Fox News. Apparently, this was late, late at night, early hours in the morning. I believe I read it was in the one o'clock hour, so the dead of night. The suspect is 26 years old, a male from Simi Valley, California. I'm not going to mention his name. He was caught carrying a gun, a knife, and pepper spray, and he had made violent threats against the justice. In addition to the gun and the knife, the tactical knife and the pepper spray, if that's not chilling enough, he had zip ties and he had equipment to break into a house. And in case there was any dispute about what his intentions were, let me read to you from the criminal complaint. Quote, this man stated that he began thinking about how to give his life a purpose, and he decided that he would kill the Supreme Court justice after finding the justice's Montgomery County address on the Internet. 
Okay. We have talked on this show multiple times about violent rhetoric, over-the-top rhetoric, blame games, political violence, etc. My position remains the same. The acts and crimes of terrible, evil, and or crazy people should not be projected onto an entire political tribe or party or one side of the aisle. I think that's unfair. Whenever things happen that even might have an inkling of blame for one side or the other, I know some people really ratchet up those types of arguments. Dangerous political rhetoric. And it's used to try to silence people. I don't think that that's a just or reasonable thing to do. I will point out that it only seems like the media and sort of the arbiters of good behavior in this country, they only seem to really embrace that unfair standard when it is weaponized against one side. Right? So when a horrible racist shoots up a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, the blame began instantly. They blame Republicans. They blame conservatives. They conflate those groups with racist and white nationalists. They blame this network. Remember that? Not long ago. But when you have acts of violence and crimes in the other direction, you just don't really get the same degree of hyperbole and media hand-wringing. You just don't. My best friend Mary Catherine Ham wrote a very good piece talking about the media coverage of the Scalise baseball shooting a few years ago and how it was treated sort of like a quick news cycle, an attempted mass assassination of Republicans for being Republicans by a left-winger. Within a few days, the cameras and the news trucks were gone from that neighborhood because she lived right near that baseball field. She wrote about that and she juxtaposed it with the way that the media covers other things. And I think it speaks for itself. So I wonder, based on this development here today, which is very disturbing, are we going to have a giant national conversation about civility and rhetoric? And is everyone going to sit together on a bipartisan basis to show that they're in solidarity and pro peaceful protest and you know whatever we're all together here we have these types of demands and these types of symbolic gestures when right wingers are under attack for someone on their side quote unquote or even not on their side the Gabby Gifford shooting was blamed on Republicans and conservatives and political rhetoric and Sarah Palin even though there was absolutely no evidence ever That linked any of that to the shooter who was a schizophrenic and not political. But we had a huge discussion, a big national conversation, a wrenching one about the climate of hate created by Republican and conservative rhetoric and right wing media figures, I guess, like me. Are we going to get that? Are we going to be treated to that type of thing right now? Will media figures, will journalists be chasing Democrats down, confronting them with their own quotes, saying, are you responsible for this assassination attempt on a Supreme Court justice? Are we going to get that kind of five-alarm fire? I somehow doubt it. 
We'll get some condemnations, a few statements, maybe some thoughts and prayers, and then we'll move on. That double standard does drive me crazy. Now, I will say that if you want to draw a line between two points and make a connection with rhetoric, which they just did with no facts on their side in the Giffords example, they do it at the drop of a hat when they feel like they can politicize something like this and criticize or hurt conservatives or the right. If you want to do that here, you actually can pretty easily. For example, here is Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the steps of the Supreme Court back in 2020. This, what you're about to hear again, was so out of line that it drew a rare rebuke from the Chief Justice. This was Schumer. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. I wonder if the 26-year-old man in California heard that speech and decided he might be part of the whirlwind and the price paying. You won't know what hit you, said Schumer. Today on the Senate floor, his counterpart, Republican leader Mitch McConnell, brought that quote back up, or at least referenced it, in Cut 47. This is exactly the kind of event that many worried the unhinged, reckless, apocalyptic rhetoric from prominent figures toward the court going back many months, and especially in recent weeks, could make more likely. I'll remind you that when these protests broke out at the justices' homes, right, it was Roberts, it was Kavanaugh, It was Barrett. It was Alito. I don't think they went to Clarence Thomas's house, unless I'm misremembering. Maybe because old Clarence would be on the front porch in a rocking chair with a shotgun. But they showed up at the homes of these justices because a left-wing group, an agitation left-wing activist group, was doxing the justices and putting their addresses on the internet. Ruth sent us is the name of that group. I haven't seen many Democrats condemn them at all, then or now. And they're out tweeting today, trying to sort of conspiratorially suggest that maybe there's less than meets the eye to this. They're saying, what were these alleged weapons? If he had a gun, they would have said so. Well, then the police said, yep, he had a gun. Oh, they said he was near the justice's house. Who's to say he was even really in the vicinity with any bad intention? Well, then he told the cops, well, my goal was to go and kill the justice. Because that's what I wanted to do to make my mark on the world and give my life purpose. So their little embarrassing self-humiliations, trying to downplay things that were then rebutted in real time as the facts came out, demonstrates that these people are remorseless. They painted a target on these houses, on the Internet. And I will remind you also, if we're doing some flashbacks here, let's circle back, in fact, together, to circle back. Jen Psaki, this was last month, 
She was asked about the doxing of Supreme Court justices and the loud, profane agitations outside their homes. And Saki speaking on behalf of President Biden, President McHealer, could not even bring herself to condemn the doxing of federal judges, even though these types of protests appear to be illegal. This is what she said under questioning from our colleague Peter Ducey just weeks ago, cut 34. Do you think the progressive activists that are now planning protests outside some of the justices' houses are extreme? Peaceful protest? No, peaceful protest is not extreme. These activists posted a map with the home addresses of the Supreme Court justices. Is that the kind of thing this president wants? The president's view is that there's a lot of passion, a lot of fear, uh, a lot Mm. of uh, sadness from many, many people across this country about what they saw in that leaked document. Mm -hmm. Uh, We obviously want people's privacy to be respected. We want people to protest peacefully if they want to, to protest. A lot of passion, just a lot of passion, guys, including passion apparently stirred in the dark heart of a 26-year-old who showed up at one of those addresses with weapons in the middle of the night and zip ties and pepper spray in addition to the lethal weapons and tools to break into the house. And when he was caught, he told the cops, yeah, I was here to assassinate the justice. I found his address on the Internet. The White House, this White House of a president who campaigned on healing and unity and cooperation and working together and not treating fellow Americans as enemies, even though he's done that repeatedly on racial fronts and other ways. This president, his team, his White House could not even muster a rote condemnation of doxing Supreme Court justices. And now here we are. Here's a question. After this all blew up, Schumer downplayed it as well, by the way. He wouldn't condemn it. Dick Durbin, his lieutenant, did condemn it. So they weren't really all on the same page on this. They were getting some heat, deservedly. There was a vote in the Senate to provide more protection to justices and their families because of this doxing and because of these outbursts. And these people showing up at private homes, family residences. It passed unanimously in the Senate. You might have thought, oh, you know, unanimous consent. It was everyone on board. Good. It must have happened, right? It must be the law now, right? Wrong. It is not law because Nancy Pelosi in the Democrat-controlled House, she has not seen fit to hold a vote on this. I wonder now that a would-be assassin has been caught with a gun announcing his intention to kill one of those justices, might Pelosi be able to squeeze that onto the schedule? Or are they just going to do a an ongoing parade of show votes on things that will never become law to satisfy their left-wing base? Will that still be the priority? I don't know. I'm not going to blame directly Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi or, or any of these people for this, but it was certainly enabled and indulged, which is a disgrace. The last White House secretary would not even condemn doxing Supreme Court justices. I wonder if the new press secretary might find some way to do so. Maybe they can write it verbatim on a card and she could read it from the podium because that's how she does the job. We'll see. We'll see. 
We're just getting started on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Fox News alert on the Guy Benson Show as we are following this arrest. The man who was planning to assassinate Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh arrested early this morning slash late last night with a gun, tactical knife, pepper spray, zip ties, and equipment to break into the house. You might be wondering, why didn't this get worse? Why didn't he follow through? Want to know the answer? According to the police report, good guys with guns. He flew from California to D.C. He took a taxi to the address that he found on the Internet, because these left-wingers posted it there. And when he showed up at the house in dark clothing, he was planning this. He saw U.S. Marshals armed at Kavanaugh's house and decided he couldn't do it and risk confronting them, so he turned himself in. Good guys with guns do some good, actually, as it turns out. Now, I was talking in the last segment about Right-wing violence and the threat of right-wing violence, which is real. There are some hardcore right-wing racist people out there who do engage in acts of violence and then left-wing violence. And there's a lot of emphasis on the former, not so much on the latter, which gets swept under the rug. And these people point to studies saying, oh, well, the studies, the research, the experts show that it's a much bigger problem with right-wing extremism than left-wing extremism. And the, the thing is... They play games by taking examples of left-wing extremism and not counting them as such. And also, it's downplayed by the media, a point that I made in the last segment. Did you know that in recent weeks there have been at least five pro-life pregnancy centers, crisis pregnancy centers that have been attacked, vandalized, and firebombed across the country by a group, a terrorist group, calling themselves Jane's Revenge, pro-abortion zealots who apparently are so pro-abortion they don't want women to choose life so they're attacking violently pro-life centers five attacks in recent weeks they've claimed responsibility this group has have you heard about that buffalo new york wisconsin texas dc have you heard about it i wonder why not Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every single day. With us now is Katie Pavlich, editor at townhall.com, my colleague there, and a Fox News contributor, my colleague here. Katie, welcome back. Great to be here. Thanks, Guy. I want to talk about the Second Amendment, guns, and the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, 
I don't know if you've had the opportunity to watch some of the testimony of a young girl named Mia Cerio, who was 11, a fourth grader, who survived in Uvalde. And in a videotaped piece of testimony for Congress, she explained how she survived. It is just gut-wrenching to listen to a young child talk about an experience like this. Here's part of what she said in Cut 44. When I went to the backpacks, uh, he shot my friend that was next to me. And I thought he was going to come back to the room. So I grabbed the blood and I put it all over me. And What did you do then when you put the blood on yourself? Just stay quiet. And then I got my teacher's phone and called 911. What did you tell 911? I told her that we need help, and she sent the police in, the, in our classroom. So she smeared her friend's blood on herself to play dead, basically. It is just awful, Katie. And one thing that's frustrating to me as we try to sort through all of this and figure out, First of all, what happened on the police failure, the law enforcement failure and the response, but more broadly, how can we try to stop on some level things like this from happening? It seems like the argument from a lot of people in this country is unless you agree with every one of their ideas and are willing to abandon all of your own ideas, you don't care about people like Mia, who we just heard from, or her friends who were murdered. It's like caring about children's lives or being fine with them being slaughtered. And I think that's a really awful place to start any conversation that might be productive in any way. Yeah, and I think that starting in a place, you know, anytime you're trying to solve a problem, you have to acknowledge the reality of the situation and who is really responsible for what happened. And listening to the testimony of that little girl, I immediately go to all the adults who failed her, whether it was the deadbeat mom who wasn't around for the the life of the shooter. He was living in his grandparents' house. The grandparents who said he was on his phone all the time but didn't actually look to see what he was doing on his phone. If they did, they would have discovered he was talking all about what he was going to do on a number of social media apps on that phone. I think about the, the police officers who didn't go into the school fast enough to save these kids. Um, And then, of course, the school was not guarded by a police officer at the time this happened. So, you know, there is room for discussion. Uh, I thought that, you know, the Matthew McConaughey's um, discussion yesterday of coming to the White House briefing and talking about the stories of the victims was extremely powerful. Um, But we are dealing with in the aftermath this conversation about gun control and gun control isn't about driving a car. It's not about, um, you know, a basic idea. It's about a constitutional right. And when you're dealing with constitutional rights, uh, you still have to protect them, even in the aftermath of horrific crime uh, and at a time when it's easy to kind of throw them out the window. So I also think that there's this idea of, you know, the federal government can somehow solve every problem, especially at a very local level. And, and that's just not that not not the case. <laughs> the federal government cannot solve every problem. And in fact, these issues, if you look at the data, if you look at the studies from the Department of Justice, these things happen as a result of failures at the the level of parents and the communities where these things happen. 
And um, so it's just unfortunate that the argument in Washington has been you either get on board with current proposals or you don't care about the safety of children. Mm -hmm. You mentioned McConaughey, and we played some of the sound of him at the White House yesterday. He was also on special report with Brett Bayer last evening. I actually really do appreciate the way he's going about this. You juxtapose it with a lot of the other rhetoric. Like you think about Better O'Rourke and what he's out there doing, and then you look at McConaughey, who seemed to be going out of his way not to alienate people, not to insult people, not to point the finger, to talk about the Second Amendment, not in a flippant way like it barely exists. I know people are going to agree and disagree with some of the things that he's suggesting, but I think just the tone, the way that he's going about it is different and welcome, at least from my perspective. I wonder, number one, first of all, do you agree with that? Just the way that he's going about this, is that welcome in your mind compared to a lot of the other stuff? Yeah, I think that he you know, he's from Uvalde. I think that the right. way that he discussed this yesterday, especially, there's a lot of things he said that I agree with. He said, you know, Second Amendment supporters and gun owners are tired of being held responsible, responsible or being blamed for the actions of deranged, evil killers. And that's absolutely true. I would differ differ with him on some of his, quote, solutions. And right. So actually on that on that point, Katie, let me just jump in and play. So here's kind of like the McConaughey plan, if you will. From the presser yesterday, cut 42. Here's what he said. Look, we heard from we heard from so many people, right? Families of the deceased, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, Texas Rangers, hunters, Border Patrol, and responsible gun owners who won't give up their Second Amendment right to bear arms. And you know what they all said? We want secure and safe schools, and we want gun laws that won't make it so easy for the bad guys to get these damn guns. So... We know it's on the table. We need to invest in mental health care. We need safer schools. We need to restrain sensationalized media coverage. We need to restore our family values. We need to restore our American values. Then he talked about red flag laws. He talked about raising the age to buy rifles to 21. There were a few gun-related provisions, background checks as well. But he didn't only focus on guns, which, again, is something that I appreciated. He talked about mental health. He talked about safer schools, which seems to be something the Biden White House has taken off the table. But there he was at the Biden White House talking about it. Media coverage, I think, is actually there's there's data that shows glorifying or giving a lot of attention to these shooters actually is part of the problem. Uh, Family values, just the the dysfunction and breakdown of families is often a contributing factor. Uh, especially when it's young men involved. He touched on a number of things there, Katie, in addition to some of the gun stuff that you may agree or disagree with, that I think is totally viable and interesting and fair for us to have a conversation around. What do you make of the McConaughey plan, the the good, the bad, the ugly, from your perspective? Well, I'll start with with what I agree with. Uh, You talked about American values, community values, mental health. If you look at the data from the National Institute of Justice, which is a component of the Department of Justice, they did a study of mass shootings from 1960 till now, and 92%, 92% of school shooters were suicidal at the time that they carried out their crimes. Mm. If you look at the college situation of shooters going into colleges, it's 100% of the time. So clearly there is an issue here with mental health care. Now, 
the deadliest mass shootings have happened over the course of the past five years. I'm curious to see what the social media impact of that is. What was the study? Katie, I know you've been tweeting that study. You just mentioned it. You just cited it. What was that study? It's from the National Institute Institute of Justice, which is an operation under the Department of Justice, and they studied mass shootings from the 1960s all the way up until 2019. Okay. And it's I I strongly recommend everybody read it because it's just straight data on who these people are who commit these heinous crimes, how often they happen, what kind of weapons are used. And it really just gives you a baseline for if you want to talk about real solutions to these problems, you have to start with the facts. And it's chock full of facts about the mental state of these people and everything else. So um, the mental thing, yes, that is something that we have to, to deal with. And that starts at home. I think broken families are a key component of these situations, not always, but a lot of the time. In terms of the legislative proposals he offered, the red flag laws, uh, he did mention an assault weapons ban. Um, The majority of mass shootings are carried out with handguns. Seventy-seven percent of them are. Um, The red flag laws, given, you know, the lack of credibility that federal law enforcement agencies have, especially the FBI, and how much they've been politicized, uh, I don't think there's any t- credibility or trust to allow them to decide who should be uh, taking away other Americans' firearms based on a lack of due process. Um, I do agree with him in the sense of he offered, you know, one said, we need background checks. Well, first of all, that statement implies that we don't have background checks. The FBI does 25 million background checks a year. Um, the situation in Uvalde, the shooter passed a background check. Now, I like what cap- what senators are looking at on the Hill by saying your juvenile record is sealed at 18 and therefore the information in that record doesn't go into a background check once you turn 18. So if you have a violent criminal record as a juvenile, that gets wiped away when you're 18 and it doesn't show up in a background check. I would be in favor of placing the juvenile record into the background check. Absolutely. Um, and then just one last thing when he said raise the age to 21. Um I think in this country, part of our cultural downfall is that we have pushed the age of adulthood beyond. uh, We keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and not having a society that is grown up and mature and that understands responsibility at the age of 18, um, I think, is is not the way to go. Uh, The average mass shooter is 33 years old. Um, and again, the majority of these crimes are carried out with, with handguns. And so I just don't think that taking away the rights Second Amendment rights against constitutional rights of uh, American citizens at 18 is is an applicable solution to or a punishment, really, uh, for a crime that someone else has committed. Mm -hmm. And look, I'm more open to the 21 thing because there are, especially with the school shooters, they tend to be younger. We know that psychosis starts to manifest itself in the late teens, early 20s. So you could at least point to a an example where. Perhaps the red flags could start to be filed between 18 and 21. That could maybe prevent some of this. And you already have to wait till you're 21 in Texas, for example, to buy a handgun. So I get that. I'm willing to listen to that. Red flag laws I have concerns about in terms of civil liberties. I would much rather see that happen at the state level. Maybe the feds can somehow encourage it but not run it because the feds are, as you point out, bad at running basically everything. And we've seen some red flag laws at the state level uh, work pretty well. And, of course, it doesn't always work. None of these solutions work for everything. And I think we'll leave it on this note, Katie. This is also something that bothers me. 
about our entire conversation around these issues. It's like if you don't go along with a solution with often no regard for the Constitution and sometimes just outright contempt for the Constitution, we heard that in some House hearings in the last couple of days, if you don't want to go along with some sort of ban, then like your ideas don't count. And they'll poke holes in some of the other things that we've been talking about saying, well, that wouldn't stop this. And that's not perfect there. None of these things are perfect, Katie. We live in a fallen, imperfect world. And so the question is, what can you do realistically that also doesn't violate the Constitution, that also, to your point, based on the actual facts, could make a difference? That seems to me to be the sweet spot that we should be talking about. We are doing that here. I think to a large extent McConaughey did as well. But an awful lot of folks are not. I'll give you the last word on that. Yeah, and I would say, you know, there's been a lot of we have to do something for the sake of doing it. Talk and lawmakers have an obligation to the people they represent, left or right, (laughs) to offer proposals that are factual, realistic, feasible, and most importantly, constitutional. Um, Because, as you said, there's no one-size-fits-all solution to these problems. And if you pass something that doesn't solve a problem and it happens again, then you just look very dishonest when it came to what you were pushing last time. And again, we're talking about a constitutional right in this situation. So, you know, constitutional feasible and being honest with people about, you know, what they can and cannot do. And again, the federal government, I think the solution is to give local authorities grants to implement these, you know, whatever works for their community, rather than having this large, overbearing federal program that doesn't necessarily work at a very specific localized level. Katie Pavlich, editor at townhall.com, Fox News contributor, my friend, my colleague, twice over our guest here on the show. Katie, always enjoy it. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. Talk to you soon. We will step aside. When we come back, the White House press secretary had another howler yesterday. Wait to hear what she said on behalf of the president. That's when we return. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on The Guy Benson Show, coming up in our next hour here in studio, joining us will be former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr. And we'll be talking to him about a whole host of subjects, including the Kavanaugh assassination plot, including the Durham probe. There's a lot to get to with Mr. Barr, and we will do so coming up in the next hour. I do want to play for you, as we mentioned in the last segment, a few pearls of wisdom shared with us yesterday by the White House press secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre. She's being asked a lot of questions about the economy, an issue on which Americans are very pessimistic. We shared some of those numbers yesterday. Like nearly, what, in the ballpark of 80% of Americans? I think it was 83% in the Wall Street Journal poll saying the economy is not good or poor. Inflation rampant. I mean, you know what's happening. So she was asked about this. And she tried to make the argument that actually we're in a pretty good position. Cut 31. What we're trying to say, what I'm trying to say to you is that the economy is in a better place than it has been historically. And so we feel here at this administration and other experts as well is that we feel that we are in a good position to take on inflation. We are in a good position to really start uh, really working on uh, lowering prices. That means nothing. They denied the inflation for a long time. 
But now they're in a good position to start taking it on and start working on lowering prices, even though prices have gone up, 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 and will remain elevated based on the experts. She wants to talk about experts for at least the coming months. And depending on what the Fed does and other factors, this thing could crash into a recession. I'm still blown away that she said the economy is in a better place than it has been historically. No, it's not. No, it's not. The U.S. economy contracted last quarter. It shrank. How can you get up there with a straight face, even if someone's written it for you and you read it out of the binder, how can you say that? That historically speaking, the economy's in a better place. No. I mean, maybe compared to like the Great Depression, but just very recent memory. It's in a worse place than it was a year ago. It's in a much worse place than it was in 2019 when things were roaring. It's just gaslighting. Oh, it's uh, historically we're in a good place. Really? Well, we are historic to a certain degree. 40 years it's been since inflation was this bad. Jean-Pierre, maybe she was referencing that when she said, quote, we are in a historic place in history. She said that in the same answer a little bit later on. Can't argue with that. We are in a historic place in history. Historic inflation. Historic gas prices. Q1 GDP contraction. Just wild gaslighting. And two-thirds of Americans living paycheck to paycheck. We did it, Joe. Another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. It's a brand new hour on the Guy Benson Show from New York this week. Thank you for listening. I am Guy Benson. Our website, GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast, really growing. Thanks to all of you. It's available on demand for free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Also at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram, other ways to get little goodies related to the show. As a reminder, programming note, I'll be on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Hope to see you there. And a Fox News alert as we enter our middle hour. The Dow down today at the close, 269 points, ending at 32,910. With us here in studio, for a couple segments is Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General under President Trump and under President George H.W. Bush, author of the New York Times bestseller, One Damn Thing After Another, which is fantastic. We discussed your book for an hour a couple <laughs> weeks ago on the show. It's great to see you again. Great to see you, Guy. There is so much to get to today, and I guess we'll start with perhaps the biggest news of the day, which is this assassination attempt or plot against Justice Kavanaugh. Thank God it was unsuccessful. The report from the police locally is that this person flew from California, took a taxi to the house. He got the address on the Internet. It's been published there by left-wing groups. He had dark clothing. He had an arsenal with him, including a gun, a tactical knife, ammunition, zip ties, pepper spray, materials to break into a house. Then he saw the armed U.S. Marshals and decided that he wasn't going to go through with it, turned himself in. Number one, obviously, this is very disturbing. Number two, you can maybe talk about some of the rhetoric and tactics 
in recent months and years in involving the Supreme Court, regarding the Supreme Court. And certainly if the shoe were on the other foot, we'd be having a frenetic national conversation about civility and rhetoric. I just wonder how you view these developments today. Well, I think for many years, uh, the left has shifted uh, from engaging in policy debates and discussions of uh, public discourse into the uh, demonization of individuals and the delegitimizing the court system. It's a hard one. Yeah. And uh, uh, so – this sort of follows from that inexorably, you know, the the uh, attacks on individuals, uh, the uh, – you know, we've seen that again and again. You know, remember back when they would confront Trump cabinet secretaries in restaurants that drive them out and – Or at their houses, yeah. right? Yeah. This, is, this is a tactic increasing sure. on the left, people's right. houses. Right, going after the people and, and uh, uh, not just on the line uh, – online but – but in the flesh. So this follows from uh, – this kind of danger follows from that inexorably. So I'm not surprised to see this kind of thing. Uh, but I also feel that uh, this administration essentially took a soft stand right at the beginning when they should have taken a tough stand. They wouldn't things. condemn the doxing of the justices. Right. They wouldn't condemn it. Right. And they, and they would not enforce the federal law, which is that you cannot – Demonstrate in front of the the home of a uh, the, the home of a, a judge in order to influence them in a case. That's crystal clear. It's a federal law. It should have been enforced, and they have ignored that. And so, uh, I think by mollycoddling this at the beginning and talking, about, oh well, you know, we 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 favored demonstrations and peaceful protest. Well, you know, protest is always subject to time, place, and manner restrictions. Uh, so. Uh, a law that says you can't do it in front of a judge's house is perfectly legitimate and consistent with the First Amendment. So I thought they've sort of handled this softly and maybe this will give them uh, you know, something to think about. The Senate passed a bill that would provide more security to justices and their <clears throat> families. It's just gone nowhere in the House controlled by Pelosi. Right. I, I wonder, might we get a second look at that given what just happened today? I hope so. And, and you know, I, uh, the attorney general did increase the protection and the attorney general has broad authority to uh, provide what's necessary. Which is good. I'm glad he yeah. did that. Yeah. Uh, and, and But I think they should do everything uh, they can to protect all the justices. Speaking of the attorney general, your successor, Merrick Garland, his ad- administration, his department is now investigating the response – of law enforcement in Uvalde, Texas. I mean, the more we learn, it seems, the worse it gets in terms of decisions made by adults for long periods of time with a lot of information and people are demanding answers. It doesn't seem like we've gotten good or straight answers at the local level. It seems like the state level folks got bad information and then repeated it. Do you think it is appropriate for the federal government to take over the investigation and to tell the American people what actually happened? Uh, you know, I don't know enough about the, the particular circumstances to be too uh, definitive on this, but I do think it's critical that we get the facts, the basic facts, so we can learn learn from them and, and not have this kind of thing uh, happen again and understand what the, exactly the thinking was uh, in the, the mind of the uh, 
official who held everyone back. Uh, and if the state is not getting to that adequately, then I have no problem with the, the, the department trying to get to the facts. On another subject, just a few days ago, Michael Sussman, the Democratic lawyer who was on trial for lying to the FBI, <clears throat> was acquitted by a D.C. jury. And some people were pointing to how left-wing the jury was, multiple Hillary Clinton donors on that jury when there was some bad information that emerged from that trial about Hillary Clinton herself. There's also apparently some bungling from the FBI where they were not really fully forthcoming, and so that helped muddy the waters, uh, and, and that helped Sussman perhaps get off. I saw a lot of people on the left saying, aha, here's Durham after all this time. He finally has a trial, and he can't even get a basic layup conviction on lying to the FBI. What's the point of this whole investigation? It's just a some sort of, I guess, you know, partisan witch hunt, and this proves it. Number one, what's your reaction to that? And number two, I know you were on another show, I think on Fox recently, where you said – well, they didn't get the conviction here, but they did something more important, which was reveal the degree of the dirty tricks and the chicanery, the dishonesty of the Clinton campaign. And a lot of your critics then popped back up and said, see, this was always about politics. It wasn't about rule of law. It was about making the Clintons look bad, making the Democrats look bad. That yeah. would that would suggest that John Durham would be in on it I, and you no, know, I mean, that he's it, a hack know, or something. It, well, it shows you who the hacks are. Uh, I've said from the beginning, uh, very simply that the the mission is to get the facts of what happened. How did this false narrative of collusion get started? And why was the FBI apparently so, I would say, overeager to jump on board and pursue this when they knew that it was a campaign coming from a campaign? And uh, that's what we have to get to the bottom of. And that's why I directed him to do a report. And as I've said, in the course of that, if there are criminal cases to be brought, I have total confidence that Durham will bring those cases. But um, it's very hard to win these kinds of cases that have uh, you know, the touch on the political process in D.C. It is the most democratic uh, <laughs> enclave in the United States. And more than that, uh, you know, we did surveys of juries when I was there, you know, when when cases were presented. And, you know, the offices would have a fairly good view of the views of jury pools. And, and people in D.C., there's, they hate Trump. They hate him. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so no uh, that. now, uh, <clears throat> fortunately, in Durham, we have a, a prosecutor who, even though he knows the jury will be tough, if he believes that that the case is a righteous case, he will try his best to deliver. And, you know, there are a lot of people who have worked very hard on this uh, and in, in an environment in the Department of Justice that doesn't favor people who are taking on this assignment. You know, if you go headhunting after a president, a Republican president, you know, it's great. Mm -hmm. But if you are uh, working for Durham, you know, you don't get the accolades from your colleagues and supervisors and so forth. And yet they've tenaciously pursued it. I, I, I expect the hackery from, from the left, but what I really am disgusted by are conservatives who, you know, get huffy about the fact that Durham lost 
the case, wasn't able to get the conviction. And, uh, you know, people are trying hard to deliver accountability in a system Mm -hmm. that is stacked against them. Mm -hmm. And as you pointed out, some of this is also just getting to truths, and we Mm -hmm. learned some important ones over the course of that trial. And it'd be one thing, uh, on the left, they, they hate you over there. They've been deranged about you ever since the Mueller, Mueller report, right? <laughs> Just total derangement. So they're going to come out and be mad at you no matter what. Henchmen sure. for Trump and all that. Right. It, it's ludicrous. If you read the book, it's ludicrous in particular, <laughs> one damn thing after another. But that's their view. They're never going to let it go. What annoys me is if they are – in this conspiracy theory that it was not about the rule of law and it's just about scoring points against Democrats, they might believe that about you, that you're a partisan hack. I don't agree with that, but whatever. They can think what they want to think. They're also accusing Durham of that right. under this theory. Durham, his integrity has been endorsed by both Democratic senators from Connecticut, right. which is where he's from. He's known to have this sterling reputation, and they're willing to just throw that in the mud just to make a political point right. while calling you and him a political hack. And pre- and previously he had been called on by Democratic attorneys general for right. special assignments like this. So you're right. You know, it's just ridiculous. My guest is Bill Barr, former U.S. attorney general under two Republican presidents. His best-selling book is One Damn Thing After Another. A few more topics to get to, including what happened last night in San Francisco to a prosecutor, no longer. And the, the crime wave that I think really influenced that decision by voters out in that city. We'll get to that with Bill Barr right after this break on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. We are back here in New York City. In studio with me is Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General, author of the book One Damn Thing After Another, which I recommend I want to get to crime in San Francisco and the recall last night of the DA out there. But first, in the break, you made one more point about this Durham matter that I think is important and I want you to share with the audience, too. Right. I mean, I, I, you know, people have to think, what would the reaction be if the shoe was on the other foot and we had a Republican incumbent administration and the Republican candidate? Uh, for the presidency, putting out this kind of false story about their opponent, planting it with the FBI, and then have the FBI stumble all over themselves in pursuing it, keeping the truth from their line agents, not even telling their line agents what the source of the information. Their own people. Their own people. And uh, also ignoring the fact that the pr- pr- principal source of this information was had been a suspected Russian spy. So, you know... Seems relevant. Yeah. Raises serious questions about collusion not, almost. Yeah. Not only the not only Hillary Clinton's campaign, but also the FBI in this. And I can't imagine civil libertarians in other circumstances not wanting to get to the truth. It's important we do. Meanwhile, as teased, let's talk about San Francisco. Yeah. Last night, Cheza Boudin, the I call him the pro-criminal prosecutor, that was elected by the people of San Francisco. They got exactly what they wanted. Nice and hard and then decided enough. He walked in with a few supporters to the rally, his election night party last night. That turned out to be a very sort of sad event with lots of long faces. Uh, They walked in weirdly kind of chanting his name after he lost (laughs) and got blown out. Cut 41. Well, if that 
doesn't inspire you, I don't know what will. <laughs> so they come rolling in. He looks a little shell-shocked. And then he gave his explanation for what happened, his 20-point loss in San Francisco, cut 40. I want to be very clear about what happened tonight. The right-wing billionaires outspent us 3-1. to one. They exploited an environment in which people are appropriately upset. It's those right-wing billionaires that run San Francisco, Mr. Attorney General. But the one thing that he did say that seemed at least somewhat tethered to reality was people are rightfully upset. Obviously, because they've thrown three school board members off the school board in recalls. They've thrown their own DA out on his ear by 20 points. And the reason is, look around the city of San Francisco. Of course people are upset. Right, as as – Anyone with any common sense would have understood. So, you know, when I was made AG again, my first speech was to the Fraternal Order of Police. And I said, look, these Soros-backed social justice DAs that were getting elected at that point uh, are going to destroy their jurisdictions. They're going to be overrun by crime. And people, local people, have to come to their senses and pay attention to who who they're entrusting with their safety. And by the way, you just – invoke the name of a left-wing billionaire whose right. network has benefited Boudin, right. but he's he's mad about the other billionaires, yeah. I guess. Let's make no mistake how these people came into power, by the way. They were, you can't – you know, they weren't really elected to power uh, – to, to office in, in, the, in the principal election. What happened was Soros would find jurisdictions where the Democratic primary determined who the ultimate winner would be because it's a one-party type jurisdiction. And so with just a few hundred votes or a few thousand votes, they can go in uh, with a few million dollars from Soros, win the primary as the Democratic nominee. Then they're in. And then they're in. On election day, they just, you know, everyone marches to the uh, to the, to the uh, poll and pulls the Democratic ballot, down ballot. And that's how they've become DAs. And now uh, it was predictable once they started their reform uh, which means letting violent people back out on the street. Uh, and not prosecuting and, right. a whole lot of stuff. Right, right. And and uh, you know, But they're not doing anyone any favors. They're not helping. The, the place, if a moral society that was truly worried about the life of the uh, inner city kids uh, would not allow them to get away as juveniles with crime after crime after crime with a slap on the wrist. The only time you can inter- – They call that compassion. Right. Well, it's the exact opposite. They're manufacturing career criminals because once they see the system isn't going to deal effectively with them, they're off and running. They learn. Right. They learn and the recidivism rate goes off the charts. The only time you can intervene effectively and stop these – save these these young lives and preve- prevent them from getting on the conveyor belt of being career criminals is by taking things seriously at the earliest stage. I'm not saying you throw them in prison, throw away the key, but they have to learn their consequences to what they do. And and these guys, by giving them slap in, uh, on the wrist, are just manufacturing more and more career criminals. 30 seconds – Will we get more of this, Gascon in L.A.? Well, I pray to God we will. I think we will. I think this will snowball. I, I hope they get rid of Gascon and, 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 and you know, the one in Chicago and Philadelphia. He's and, bad in Philly. Yeah. He's blaming the NRA. Krasner, yeah. For 
mass shootings in the city. It's right. been run by Democrats. It's not an NRA member in sight in Philadelphia. Right. He's the chief law enforcement officer talking about NRA lobbyists. Right. So uh, it's absurd. And I, it's so absurd, in fact, that the people of San Francisco had enough. And that's an achievement to be <laughs> too progressive for San Francisco. Bill Barr, always great to see you. Great to see you. Thank you. We will step aside and be right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Halfway through the week and the program. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is always free right there. Catch me on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern. That'll be fun. Coming up in the next segment, U.S. Senator Mike Lee, Republican Utah. He will be here a lot to get to with him, of course. I do want to bring you up to speed on a story that we covered on Monday with Howie Kurtz which was a weekend of dysfunction and backbiting and backstabbing and rancor within the ranks of the Washington Post, where democracy dies in darkness. These journalists were just going at each other on social media, on Twitter, with reckless abandon. It was just pretty astonishing to see. You had the Taylor Lorenz scandal where she was caught in a lie about asking sources for comment or asking subjects of a piece for comment before publishing it, and they had to roll out multiple corrections based on her apparently unethical journalistic behavior. And then that amazingly got overshadowed by this blow-up involving one reporter angry about a retweet of a bad joke that was unretweeted and apologized for almost immediately. That has turned into days of anger and anguish and tension and a circular firing squad within the newsroom. And we're getting more dribs and drabs about what's happening within the newsroom. That story that we told you about on Monday started over the weekend. I regret to inform you, it is still going on. It hasn't stopped. As I mentioned on Monday, they suspended the guy, Dave Weigel, the reporter, who did the bad retweet of a joke considered sexist by many. I mean, was it like really horrifically terrible, worthy of a month-long suspension without pay? No. In my view, it absolutely was not. But you've got the female journalist over there who claimed to be a good friend of Dave's, who blew him up, agitated to get him punished and suspended, which she did. And she has all sorts of double standards. People are finding old tweets of hers about what her standards should be when someone gets in trouble for tweets. And amazingly, this will come as a shock, she does not have a consistent view on that question. And she has just turned herself into this weird martyr slash victim where she keeps going after her colleagues. She won't stop. The editors put out some statements and some internal emails asking people to cease and desist from these public attacks. One of the people in charge, at least nominally at the Washington Post, in an email said, we will not tolerate people attacking colleagues here at the Post. The thing is, though, they are very much tolerating it. They are almost encouraging it because they are punishing only one side of this issue. And they're allowing this rogue other group of left-wing progressives behind this one woman, Felicia, to run roughshod over their policies, over their public statements, 
and certainly over some of their colleagues. There's like a veteran female journalist who simply replied begging this Felicia character to stop going after colleagues publicly. She said, please stop. That was the whole tweet. And that unleashed a brand new tirade from this woman. And there's theories that she's got an active lawsuit against The Washington Post. This is who she is. She's got some Me Too allegations from her past that are now getting scrutinized again based on her conduct. She just seems like a grievance-mongering, clout-chasing person who obviously is litigious as well. So the theory is she is trying to get herself fired. She's either on a massive power trip proving that the people in charge of her, the bosses, aren't really in charge. She runs the place. Or she's daring them to punish her, which she deserves based on their own rules, which she'll then plug into her lawsuit against her own company. So that's fun. And what I find interesting about this is it all aligns and falls in alignment with the 50th anniversary this week of the Watergate break-in, which brought down a presidency based on reporting famously at the Washington Post from Woodward and Bernstein. So looking back on that scandal 50 years ago, one of the most famous journalistic enterprises really in the history of American journalism, Woodward, Bernstein, all the president's men, Nixon, all of that, were 50 years out. And the Washington Post seems to have gone from Woodward and Bernstein, Watergate and the Pentagon Papers to doxing TikTok creators and flaming colleagues on Twitter. What a transition. This is like a Biden-style Incredible transition, as he would say, from Woodward and Bernstein to Tay-Tay and Felicia. What a journey for one of our nation's allegedly most prestigious newspapers. We see this type of mob mentality and insanity at the New York Times. We see it at some of the left-wing organizations and left-wing publications. We see it at the Washington Post. We don't see it everywhere. It's a choice. It's a choice by management and editors to either reward and indulge and tolerate this stuff or not. And a bunch of these journalists at The Post all put out tweets almost simultaneously yesterday claiming how much they love The Post, and they all almost use the exact same verbiage. Like, it's collegial and kind and collaborative, and I'm proud to work here. One after another tweeted it. It's not really that convincing when they all tweet the exact same thing with the almost identical language and formulations. I guess that's their way of trying to enforce some morale, some improving morale over there. It's not going to improve as long as they have some crazy people turning the whole place toxic. With bosses in the corner wringing their hands and rocking back and forth in the fetal position. What a mess at the Washington Post. It's just humiliating for basically everyone involved. We'll break. We'll come back. Senator Mike Lee coming up after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. And joining us now is U.S. Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah. He serves on the Senate Judiciary and Joint Economic Committees. He also has a new book out, Saving Nine, the fight against the left's audacious plan to pack the Supreme Court and destroy American liberty. 
Senator, welcome back to the show and a belated happy birthday to you. Thanks so much, Guy. Thanks for letting me talk about Saving Nine. Let's talk about it. Tell us about the book. I think we all know why you felt compelled to write it. What are the key points that you're hoping people derive from Saving Nine? Guy, I wrote Saving Nine because by packing the Supreme Court, it's a constitutional way of destroying the Constitution. It seems counterintuitive. It's weird, in fact, that they can pack the Supreme Court, and that's totally constitutional. The problem is that the effect is anti-constitutional. They want to dismantle it. They want to delegitimize the court and eliminate the independence of the federal judiciary. That might sound more tolerable than it should in the ears of, of some, but after they read Saving Nine, they'll understand why this would really destroy our whole system of government. All of our liberties, all of our rights uh, under the First Amendment, under the Second Amendment, under the Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, Eighth, I mean, all of these things could be stripped from us if we destroy the independence of the judiciary. That's why I wrote Saving Nine, because these stories are out there, but they're not being told anymore. The stories of what happens when you delegitimize and demonize the courts, we're still paying the price, as I explained in Chapter Four of Saving Nine, for what Franklin D. Roosevelt did to the country. Back in 1937, the last time court packing was attempted, and it's not a pretty price. Speaking of delegitimizing the court, I want to play for you a soundbite that I know you've heard before. We played it earlier on the show today. It is newly relevant again, unfortunately. This was 2020, steps of the Supreme Court, now Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, cut 30. I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price. You won't know what hit you if you go forward with these awful decisions. Then a few weeks ago, when the Dobbs decision leaked, there was a huge firestorm about that, obviously. And some activists on the left published, doxed, and published the home addresses of some of the conservative justices. And mobs went to those houses and were screaming into bullhorns, and those addresses were then available for people to find. One of the people who found one of the addresses was caught last night armed to the teeth with a stated intention of assassinating Justice Kavanaugh, one of the people threatened there by Chuck Schumer in the soundbite. Your reaction in light of your book on this subject, Senator, to what we saw today, and is there some culpability here from people like Chuck Schumer in your view? Yeah, look, I, I, I was very nervous at the time he made that statement. Uh, he, he should know better. I believe he's a, a lawyer, a counselor, an officer of the court. And as such, he knows the dangers associated with doing that sort of thing. That is um, quite arguably an attempt to incite violence against the judicial branch of government, against the highest court in the land. But even if it doesn't amount to that in, in the technical legal sense, it is at a minimum uh, an effort to delegitimize and denigrate the court, which is also something that no officer of the court should do. No American citizen who loves law, the rule of law, and the Constitution should ever do. And so while he's not responsible for the direct actions of a third party who can act on his own, yep. 
he, he should not engage in speech like that. The problem here is, Guy, this has become commonplace among the far left. It's become commonplace for them to demonize and delegitimize the court. It's what they've been doing certainly ever since the Dobbs opinion, the draft opinion from Justice Alito leaked. And it's what they're doing in order to prepare to pack the Supreme Court. This well, is very similar in some respects. It's not just the FDR court, right? Like the delegitimizing campaign here is against the Supreme Court. It's against the U.S. Senate. It's against the Electoral College. It's basically against any institution in the country standing in the way of them doing exactly what they want. Yes. Yes. No, that's that's exactly right. Um, they're, they believe, apparently, that the means are justified by the ends that they have in mind, and they, they feel that somehow they're on the side of the angels on this. They're not. Because in our system of government, you're not on the side of angels, regardless of how uh, how vaunted your subjective intentions might be. You're not on the side of the angels when you are really trying to undermine our system of government. That that can't happen. That can't happen in our society without notice and without people uh, coming to the defense of the court and saying we're not going to put up with that. There are people, as you know, Senator, a lot of them, who would say, good, the court should be delegitimized. It's not a legitimate court. And our system of government should be undermined because it sucks and we need something completely different. There are people who believe that. They are listening to your warnings and saying this actually sounds great to us. Let's blow this stuff up. What's your response to them? Are you really trying to reach them or are you trying to reach other people in the middle to make sure that those people don't prevail? Well, I'm trying to reach anyone who's willing to read the book, willing to uh, educate themselves as to what happens when you threaten the court. And I I think these are stories that are out there but that are not told. And when those stories aren't told, it becomes a really big problem because the American people tend to forget them. And so regardless of how one feels about abortion, regardless of whether one believes that this is uh, a problem that is exclusive to the left, it is. It is exclusive to the left. Republicans haven't done this. Look, over the last 49 years, Republicans have uh, been really strongly opposed to what the Supreme Court has done with abortion, taking a debatable matter beyond debate, pulling it into the Constitution as if it were, which it isn't. And yet never once during that period of time have Republicans said, you know, the answer to that is to delegitimize the court. Never once have Republicans suggested let's pack the court. And so people need to read this book to understand the historical predicate for it. Yep. This book will give you the tools you need to help defeat it. And the book is Saving Nine by Senator Mike Lee, our guest. And it's interesting. They play these games when Republicans and conservatives are – Going through the constitutional process to confirm judges, which became a lot easier, by the way, because the Democrats abused their power previously by ending the judicial filibuster. So they did this to themselves. But when Republicans have taken advantage of that and confirmed a bunch of people to courts, they call that packing of courts, which it's not. And then they've advocated at the same time actually packing courts, which is much more destructive. And they just go along with these these rhetorical games 
And I think it's up to people like me and people like you to correct the record and hopefully make a dent with people who may not follow this stuff very closely. Uh, and, and the goal is for them not to be taken in by some of this really radical stuff that you describe. Senator Lee, I do want to ask you about another matter, which is tomorrow night, Washington, D.C. will be, in many cases, tuned into this hearing of the January 6th committee. They're going to be presenting a lot of their initial findings in prime time. Uh, you know, maybe it's scheduled to be an hour and a half or two hours, I believe. Number one, will you be watching with an open mind? I know that there's, you know, definitely some partisan Democrats on there. There's some very anti-Trump Republicans on there. Um, are you open-minded to information that they might present or they might have gleaned? What is your thought on these proceedings? Well, of course, I'll be open, open-minded open to information they present. Uh, I'm always curious. I'm always interested to see what information will come forward from any investigation, any discussion of these things. I will also say here, Guy, that based on what I've seen from them so far, based on the way this committee was put together, based on its composition, and the fact that in creating it, uh, the House of Representatives and the Democratic majority departed from decades of custom structure, practice, and the plain text of the legislation creating this committee. Uh, I'm not holding my breath. I'm not holding my breath in terms of um, uh, uh, some kind of objective fact-finding mission. What we see on on that committee are no opposing voices, no back and forth. They kept out of that committee anyone who might disagree with them. That's kind of a scary thing when you're doing a a legislative committee investigation, an entity given subpoena power, and there is, is no adversity. There's no opposing viewpoint allowed to be on that committee. I do want to ask you briefly, and we have about a minute left, some of your text messages around January 6th have entered into the public realm. Just a a quick thought on that. Do you regret any of those texts looking back? Uh, 30 seconds. I know it's tough to answer it that quickly. Well, yeah, look, Guy, when your personal text messages get leaked for partisan political purposes by an entity whose principal objective is opposition research funded by the U.S. government, yeah, I regret sending them. But no. Nothing I said was wrong. Everything I said in there reflects my view, which is at every moment I was trying only to figure out what the Constitution required. There were rumors circulating at the time suggesting that some states were going to withdraw their electoral votes. Okay, so you're standing by your thoughts. Obviously, this has gotten political as well. We'll be watching tomorrow night. Senator Mike Lee, Saving Nine is the book on The Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Halfway through the week, glad you're here with us every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free of charge every day on demand. Social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter, and Instagram. And a programming note in my capacity as a Fox News contributor, 
I'll be on Gutfeld, exclamation point, tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Really fun panel. It's Greg, Kat, Tyrus, myself, and Molly Hemingway. So that'll be fun. We are also up against POTUS on Kimmel. The first interview this president has deigned to subject himself to since February the 10th. And it's a fellow partisan and part-time comedian, Jimmy Kimmel. So I think the president might be a draw. Kimmel usually loses to Gutfeld. It would be fun if we just stayed in the fight. Maybe you can tune in for us. 11 p.m. Eastern tonight, Fox News Channel. And this hour is sponsored by The Finish Long Drink, which is fantastic. I'll probably have a long drink after Gutfeld. TheLongDrink.com, their website, they're expanding across the country. Last year they were in 17 states. Now they're in close to 40. Type in your zip code. You can find out where it's sold near you. You can order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. Joining us now is Tom Bevan, co-founder and president of RealClearPolitics.com. It's at Tom Bevan RCP on Twitter. That's his handle. Tom, good to have you back. Always great to be with you, Guy. I want to start with last night and some of these outcomes. A few interesting developments on primary fights. Feel free to comment on anything that jumps out at you. The race that most people are talking about this morning is a pretty early call last evening in San Francisco. Cheza Boudin, this left-wing, arguably pro-criminal prosecutor, was thrown out by the voters of that very progressive city. They had just had too much. And there's been recrimination. There's been excuse-making. And there's been people, I think searching for national themes to draw upon based on that one outcome. What do you make of that and any of the other results last night? Yeah, I mean, obviously that is a race that that caught a lot of people's attention uh, because of what it potentially signals. You know, we, we, we saw what happened in New York with Eric Adams. Uh, we also saw last night that, you know, we had uh, uh, Caruso, who's a former uh, former Republican now running as a, a Democrat for mayor of Los Angeles actually outpolled Karen Bass, who is considered to be the favorite there. And those two will now uh, run off against each other in the fall. And Chase Boudin, which, which, you know, again, uh, was elected to office in 2020. And here we are two years later, and he's thrown out on his ear by a pretty substantial margin. I mean, there's still votes to be counted there, but it's, you know, 60-40. It wasn't even that close. And, you know, he wants to blame it on the right-wing billionaires that he set out spending <laughs> uh, which is sort of laughable given that the actual, you know, the voters of San Francisco who, who are not typically influenced by right-wing billionaires uh, and know their city pretty well just had had enough of, of the way that he had conducted himself in office. And to, you, to your point, you know, he had framed all of this as criminal justice reform, but what it turned out to be was sort of, you know, soft on crime, um, not prosecuting, uh, you know, criminals enough to the point where people in that city didn't feel safe anymore, especially Asian Americans. I mean, there was a, you know, a yep. spree of, of hate crimes against Asian Americans, and and they just didn't feel that he was doing enough and taking it seriously, even to the point where he was at odds with the mayor, who who came out and said, "We're going to stop this BS," as she called it. Um, so obviously, I, I think that does send a, another signal to Democrats running across the country this fall about what role crime is going to play in the electoral mix. And it's going to be a potent issue for sure. They call it criminal justice reform. Sometimes that 
moniker applies. In other cases, like in the mind of Chesa Boudin, it's more like pro-criminal reform. That's sort of how it manifested itself in practice. And he paid the price last night. And I also find it a bit rich, Tom, to your point, on the blaming of these right-wing billionaires. Let's just take the right-wingers out of it because it's San Francisco. There are basically none of them there at all. It's a non-factor. Everyone knows that. It's a very stupid argument on his part. But the money game, money doesn't win and lose elections anymore. I know it can be a helpful factor, but we've seen over and over again people getting vastly outspent and still winning races from the local level all the way up to the presidency. Thinking back to 2016, for example, there's that. And also, if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Boudin himself was the beneficiary of quite a lot of largesse from at least one left-wing billionaire and his network. So I guess you know some money in politics is good as long as it's their money, and it's only evil when the other side has the upper hand on spending. I just think that that's extremely weak sauce that most people are just chuckling at today. Yeah, I agree. Listen, he, he tried to sort of gaslight voters and suggest that he was never for defunding the police. Yeah, he gave an interview where he said that, which is just absolutely untrue. There's clips of it. I saw, I saw your Twitter <laughs> posts about this. There are receipts. You brought the receipts, Tom. Yes, I did. It took about two seconds on Google to find him, <laughs> you know, endorsing the idea of, of transferring money from the police department to other social services in the name of, you know, criminal justice reform. But the one thing he did say that was true last night is, and I think it's an important distinction, which is, you know, versus the the, the recall of Gavin Newsom, he said voters weren't they weren't offered an alternative, right? They were just offered an opportunity to voice their their frustrations, and they took that opportunity, right? He wasn't running against a Republican. He wasn't running against anybody that he could point out as as the bogeyman, and that really put him in a tough spot. Um, it was a referendum on him, which is not what on the— On him and him only. Exactly. That's right. And the way that Gavin Newsom was able to win big in that recall, even though there's a lot of distaste about him— among the electorate in California, and a lot of bitter feelings toward him, is he turned it into a choice between himself and what he cast as this dangerous right-wing, I think some people actually called him a white nationalist sympathizer, even though he was black, Larry Elder. But they made it a choice, like, do you want this right-wing bogeyman to run the state of California, or do you want a Democrat? And ultimately, it's such a blue state that people said, okay, let's, let's not hand the keys over to these people that we hate. But in this case, it was not a choice. You're right. There was no other person to demonize. It was just do you – it was a vote of no confidence, right? A vote of That's no right. confidence on the job performance of Chisa Boudin or Chesa Boudin, however he says his name. And by a large margin, the people of San Francisco said, no confidence, you're out. And I think if you're George Cascone down in Los Angeles or others, maybe – Larry Krasner in Philadelphia or elsewhere, you might be looking over your shoulder now at the voters, given what happened in San Francisco and how decisive it was. Now, I want to talk, Tom, now broadening things out to the midterm cycle and the political environment right now. I saw this clip yesterday from CNN. Harry Enten is an elections guru who follows all these things very closely. He's their in-house person over at CNN. He was on with Jake Tapper and just running through one terrible data point for the Democrats after another about Biden, about the economy, about the generic ballot, all of it. And one of Enton's points was that Biden's unpopularity is a drag on the party, broadly speaking. And I wrote about this earlier at townhall.com. Here's part of that exchange with Tapper in Cut 39. Listen. 
Why is his approval rating so low? Well, I think this slide will give you the answer. This is the net approval rating on the economy at this point in the presidency. Joe Biden's minus 26 points. That is the lowest, tied for the lowest for any president in the last 40 plus years. So speaking of the economy, just how big of a drag is this uh, economic situation shaping up to be for Democrats on the ballot this fall? I think it's the big drag. Why is it the big drag? Because most important issue in your vote for Congress, what tops the list? Not surprisingly, with those gas prices as high and the inflation as high as it is, the economy at 48 percent, that beats gun violence at 17, abortion at 12, immigration, which Republicans had really wanted to run on, all the way down at 6 percent. And here, I think, is the big takeaway. Views on, your, on the economy are closer to, look at this, Republican Party, 51 percent, Democratic Party, 31 percent. Republicans lead on the issue that's most important. No wonder they have a st- historic advantage on the generic congressional ballot, Jake. All right. So a lot to take in there, Tom. Joe Biden in the CNN numbers that were just broken down there by Harry Enten. Biden's at negative 26 on the economy. And at this point in his presidency, compared to modern presidents, he is tied for dead last by quite some margin, tied with Jimmy Carter, a name that's been coming up recently in terms of some of these comparisons. And then on the number one issue facing voters, Republicans have a 20-point lead on the economy. I mean, that really does tell the story here, does it not? Yeah, I mean, this. listen, <laughs> there was an ABC News poll that came out earlier this, this week. It's similar things. I mean, this is not rocket science, right? 80% of Americans say inflation is extremely or very important factor in how they will vote. And for gas prices, it's 74%. Biden's approval rating on his handling of inflation is 28%, and it's 27% on gas prices. So, I mean, there's a lot of talk about, oh, guns being an issue or abortion being an issue or, you know, for a while it was it was Ukraine. Um, it was the Supreme Court. I mean, it's just none of that stuff matters. It, they all pale in comparison to the economy and Biden's handling of the economy in the, in the view of the American people is atrocious. And And it is. I mean, if you look at, you know, Presidential job approval is one of the prime indicators for how a party will do in in the midterm election. And it makes sense if you think the guy in charge is doing a good job, you're going to vote for members of his party and vice versa. You look at Biden's job approval rating right now in our real quick politics average, it's uh, it just ticked down again to under 40 percent. So thirty nine point seven percent. Brutal. Right. Which is I think it might actually be his all time low thus far. In fact, it is the Previous low is 39.8% on February 9th. So, so he's at an all-time low in his job approval rating. And you just think about these, you think about these, these folks in these purple states, Arizona, Georgia, New Hampshire, uh, Nevada. And even if these candidates run perfect campaigns, and they are incumbents, so they will have a little bit of an advantage, are they really going to run you know, 10, 11, 12 points better than their president um, overall? In this kind of environment, when when he is to being judged as being, uh, you know, woefully inadequate in terms of handling the number one issue, mm-hmm. it, that is a heavy, heavy lift. And so you can see why I think Democrats are really uh, up against it in terms of hanging on to the Senate. And as far as the House goes, I mean, it's it's all but a done deal. That when you look at those numbers in terms of how many seats they're trying to defend, even if Republicans split just the number of seats that are considered toss-ups right now, they'd win the House. And so. Uh, it's 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 about as bad of an environment as as we've seen. And by the way, in in, in years, in decades, and last cycle, 2020, Republicans actually swept 
the toss-up races in the House, swept them in 2020 in a less favorable national environment. So uh, that's why they're sweating over on the Democratic side. Tom Bevan, let's take a quick break. But when we come back, I want to crunch a few more numbers, adding to the Democratic heartburn, putting this current situation into historical context. We'll get to that straight ahead. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, it's the happy hour. Joining us is Tom Bevan of Real Clear Politics, and we are walking through some electoral numbers. There was another data point that was interesting that was shared in that CNN segment where Enton went through and said there have been some midterm cycles because, look, midterms are usually bad for the party that controls the presidency. That is historically true, especially in that first midterm election. There's a correction from the electorate. People like checks and balances and that sort of thing. There have been a few examples in recent memory where the incumbent party or the ruling party or the White House party did not end up losing substantial seats and in some cases may have even gained a little bit or only lost a few. That would be 1962, 1998, and 2002. JFK, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, and you can point to various reasons why. But the job approval rating on Election Day for those midterms, for those three respective presidents in those years, were 71 percent, 63 percent and 72 percent. And Joe Biden is not even within shouting distance of that, as you just pointed out. He is barely clinging to 40 percent and has just dipped a little bit below, as you mentioned, in your average. I guess the only question becomes, can the Democrats not necessarily win I think that's very unlikely. Can they mitigate the losses? Can they stop the bleeding a little bit here by coming back in the next couple of months? The election is not next week. It is in November. That's, I think, an open question, but I would just refer to some of the work done by your colleague, Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics. He has gone back through history, and Henry Olson at The Washington Post did the same thing. Generally, the midterm outcomes are baked in just after Memorial Day or at the end of June, at the end of that second quarter leading into the summer and then fall. Well, guess what? We're just past Memorial Day. It's just in the rearview mirror, and we're coming up to the end of June. I'm just not sure how much time and space realistically the Democrats might have to improve their fortunes. I think all of that is exactly right. They don't have much time. Uh, You know, it it might already be too late at this point because it and it certainly doesn't look like things are going to get better, you know, at all uh, in the next couple of weeks, let alone as much as the Democrats might need it to change public perception. I mean, I think their only hope, honestly, right now, Guy, is that is that Republicans nominate a couple of candidates here and there that just can't get the job done in some of these Senate races. They, they prove for whatever reason – and they're – you know, you go back and look through history. There, there are one or two of these every single cycle, yep. right? Sharon Angle and Christine O'Donnell and Todd Aiken and Richard Murdoch. Mm-hmm. And the list goes on. I think, I think right now that's Democrats' best hope is that you know, in a couple of these Senate races, that Republicans nominate candidates that just aren't sufficient to get the job done. They can, they will wither under under Democratic attacks, and that's the only mitigation strategy that they have at this point. You know, you mentioned those midterms. I mean. The 2002 was historic because of George W. Bush. We were coming out of 9/11. Right. They were talking about. Uh, they were debating the Iraq War. 
but you look at like 94, Clinton's first midterm. You look at Barack Obama's first midterm in 2010. Um, they both had approval ratings that were in the, the high 40s, 47, 48% approval rating, and they still got destroyed, um, lost, you know, 50, 60 seats. So Biden is nowhere near that. Well, and, and also and, in Obama's second midterm election, after he won re-election in 2012, in 2014, Republicans netted nine Senate seats that cycle. And Obama was not nearly as unpopular as Joe Biden is right now. And I think that really is the crux of the problem that the Democrats have with the clock ticking. And you're right. I think in some of these Senate races, the best hope that the Democrats have is bad Republican nominees. And the last point I'll make, Tom, just a PSA for right-leaning voters out there from yours truly, Guy Benson. If you see the Democrats spending money to boost a candidate in a Senate race or a governor race, which is what they're doing, they meddle. They spend money. They try to trick Republican voters into supporting someone that they believe is more easily defeatable in a general. Maybe don't give the Democrats exactly what they want when it comes to Republican primary election decisions when you're in that voting booth. Maybe that's just me, but it is relevant to Tom's point on this front, which is very well taken. Tom Bevan, Real Clear Politics co-founder and president. Always great to have you here. Great to be with you. Thanks, Scott. We'll be right back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Happy hour. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. As we continue here on the Wednesday edition of The Guy Benson Show, let's flash back to earlier in today's program, Bill Barr, former U.S. Attorney General, author of the bestseller, One Damn Thing After Another. He joined us here in studio up in New York. A lot to talk about with him, as you might imagine. Here's a taste of the conversation that we had. Certainly, if the shoe were on the other foot, we'd be having a frenetic national conversation about civility and rhetoric. I just wonder how you view these developments today. Well, I think for many years, uh, the left has shifted uh, from engaging in policy debates and discussions of public discourse into the uh, demonization of individuals and the delegitimizing the court system. It's a hard one. Yeah. And uh, uh, so this sort of follows from that inexorably, you know, the the, uh, attacks on individuals – uh the uh you know we've seen that again and again you know remember back when they would confront trump cabinet secretaries in restaurants that drive them out and or at their houses yeah. right yeah. this is this is a tactic increasing sure. on the left people's right. houses right going after the people and and uh uh not just on the line uh, online but but in the flesh so this follows from uh, this kind of danger follows from that inexorably. So I'm not surprised to see this kind of thing. Uh, but I also feel that uh, this administration essentially took a soft stand right at the beginning when they should have taken a tough stand. They these. wouldn't condemn the doxing of the justices. Right. They wouldn't condemn it. Right. And they and they would not enforce the federal law, which is that you cannot – Demonstrate in front of the the home of a uh, the, the home of a judge in order to influence them in a case. That's crystal clear. It's a federal law. It should have been enforced, and they have ignored that. 
And so uh, I think by mollycoddling this at the beginning and talking about, oh, well, you know, we, we, we favor demonstrations and peaceful protest. Well, you know, protest is always subject to time, place and manner restrictions. Uh, so uh, a law that says you can't do it in front of a judge's house is perfectly legitimate and consistent with the First Amendment. So I thought they've sort of handled this softly and maybe this will give them uh, you know, something to think about. The Senate passed a bill that would provide more security to justices and their <clears throat> families. It's just gone nowhere in the House controlled by Pelosi. Right. I, I wonder, might we get a second look at that given what just happened today? I hope so. And, and you know, I, uh, the attorney general did increase the protection and the attorney general has broad authority to uh, provide what's necessary. Which is good. I'm glad he yeah. did that. Yeah. Uh, and, and But I think they should do everything uh, they can to protect all the justices. Speaking of the attorney general, your successor, Merrick Garland, his ad- administration, his department is now investigating the response – of law enforcement in Uvalde, Texas. I mean, the more we learn, it seems, the worse it gets in terms of decisions made by adults for long periods of time with a lot of information and people are demanding answers. It doesn't seem like we've gotten good or straight answers at the local level. It seems like the state level folks got bad information and then repeated it. Do you think it is appropriate for the federal government to take over the investigation and to tell the American people what actually happened? Uh, you know, I don't know enough about the, the particular circumstances to be too uh, definitive on this, but I do think it's critical that we get the facts, the basic facts, so we can learn learn from them and, and not have this kind of thing uh, happen again and understand what the, exactly the thinking was uh, in the, the mind of the uh, official who held everyone back. Uh and if the state is not getting to that adequately, then I have no problem with the, the the department trying to get to the facts. On another subject, just a few days ago, Michael Sussman, the Democratic lawyer who was on trial for lying to the FBI, <clears throat> was acquitted by a D.C. jury. And some people were pointing to how left-wing the jury was, multiple Hillary Clinton donors on that jury when there was some bad information that emerged from that trial about Hillary Clinton herself. There's also apparently some bungling from the FBI where they were not really fully forthcoming, and so that helped muddy the waters, uh, and, and that helped Sussman perhaps get off. I saw a lot of people on the left saying, aha, here's Durham after all this time. He finally has a trial, and he can't even get a basic layup conviction on lying to the FBI. What's the point of this whole investigation? It's just a some sort of, I guess, you know, partisan witch hunt, and this proves it. My full interview with former U.S. Attorney General Bill Barr, available on our website, GuyBensonShow.com, part of the free podcast as well, the entire show, every day on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, it was an early morning for yours truly, Mornings with Maria on Fox Business Network, but there was a pretty amazing payoff, especially at the very end of the show, a feast and a celebrity chef. That story next. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for being here. Every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern, so we're just on the downslope to the end of the program. Set your DVRs or tune in tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern time. Gutfeld, I'm on the panel, Fox News Channel. Looking forward to that, as I always do. Should be a lot of fun. So I'm ending the day on the 11 p.m. show on FNC. I started the day on the 6 a.m. show on FBN. Maria Bartiromo and company had me on. I was on the panel for all three hours. Mornings with Maria. And the last guest of the show was David Burke, celebrity chef, and he came in with a whole spread. And the hook was to talk about inflation and how it's affecting restaurants. We actually talked to John Taffer about that recently on this show. It was actually fascinating listening to David talk about how inflation is really hitting restaurants and what they have to pay for things and then charge customers for them and what customers will accept or not accept. seems like they boost their margins on booze. That's what they're doing now, but he said it's going to have to come up on food as well. He said you just can't sustain things otherwise. It's also hard to get good help, he mentioned, for a number of different reasons still. But he did not come just with his chef coat. He was not empty-handed. He had two or arguably three different pizzas that he brought with him. One had lobster on it. He brought a key lime pie that was enormous. He brought cannolis. He brought black and white cookies. He just, I guess, got a new bakery or bought a bakery in New Jersey. He's a Jersey guy. A huge seasoned steak with crab meat as well. And in the commercial break before he comes on, they bring all this food and they array it in front of us all over the news desk. And it looks amazing. It also smells really good. He's famous for the thick cut strips of bacon that they then hang with little clothespins almost to a piece of string. That's what he's known for at his steakhouses. We had that with all the pepper goodness on it. It was amazing. They also were telling us, I'd only heard about this until we saw it. We were confused what this was going to entail. They were talking about a watermelon pizza. I was like, excuse me, that might be worse than pineapple pizza, which is something Christine and I have argued about many times on the air. I said, I don't think watermelon would be a great topping on a pizza, just personally. Willing to try, always willing to try, but I was skeptical. But then when it shows up, The watermelon is the base of the pizza. They cut out like a thin slice straight across from the middle of the watermelon that was the base. And it was basically a salad that you eat with your hands. And they slice it like a pizza, six or eight slices. And they have some fresh cheese on it, some prosciutto, some arugula, I believe, olives, a little bit of a drizzle. And then the quote-unquote... Tomato sauce was a sweet gazpacho, just a little bit of it, and it was really good. So this was, I'd like to call it, a breakfast of champions. Steak, crab, lobster, pizza, all the sweets, and I was like, keep it away from me. Because I knew as soon as I was going to start eating it, it was going to become a problem. But I was able to restrain myself. I had one cannoli. I had one slice of the watermelon pizza. I had a bite of real pizza and a bite of the steak. 
And he just kept cajoling me. Have this, have that. They were trying to get me to eat more of it on the air. I just, I don't necessarily want a ton of people watching me eat. But I was willing to be a sort of a good sport about it for the TV cameras. David Burke could not have been nicer. Such a nice guy. And I want to point out, last time I came to New York, last month I believe, on my train up to New York, I was seated next to Daniel Balud, one of the most famous chefs in the world, French chef. On this trip to New York, I got to be on television with David Burke and taste his food live. He was a contestant, by the way, a few years back on Top Chef Masters, which I remembered. We chatted about that a little bit because, you know, I'm a Top Chef fan. So I'm hoping maybe next time I'm up here over the summer, I'm rooting for, I don't know, Eric Repair. Let's see. But I need to keep the chef train, no pun intended, going. I need to keep this streak alive of meeting famous chefs. And Christine, you were saying, because I mentioned this, and I posted on my Instagram story, at Guy P. Benson. You can follow the show, at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. My personal account, Twitter and Instagram, is at Guy P. Benson. I put on my story a shot of all of this food as they were delivering it. And you saw it, and you said, oh, David Burke, New Jersey, because Jersey folks stick together. Of course And I guess we talked earlier, what, a couple weeks ago, about how you've been planning this birthday dinner for your husband against his wishes. He's turning 40. You're doing it anyway. And the restaurant, unbeknownst to me, that you selected is a David Burke restaurant. Have you selected the menu yet? Um, I've selected the appetizers. Don't you remember? This was a Dr. Benson. This was a dear guy. I do. I wasn't sure if I had to pay for I was for your therapist, as I often am, unlicensed, uncompensated. Oh, yeah, you were worried about inviting a bunch of people, which you already had, yep. and then the expectation that you would pay for it. Right. Have you resolved that? Yeah, I'm paying for it. You are paying for yeah. it. Yeah. I think that's the right call. I think so, too. I think that's the right call. What apps have you gotten? Do you remember? We're doing the bacon. Oh, the bacon on the clothesline. Yep. That's a definite. And then, oh. Uh, have you had that before? Uh, not at a David Burke restaurant, it's but I've good. had it before they as an like, appetizer. They take a blowtorch to it as well to give it that smoky, hot finish that sizzles at the very end. It's pretty cool. I think we're going to do that. And then, of course, you know, this is a nice dinner. You need a seafood tower. Is it a nice dinner if you don't have one? I don't think so. You do love to see a, a seafood, seafood tower. tower. You do. You do. And it just with, like, the um, like that smoke billowing off of it from what is it, the dry ice or whatever, to yep. keep everything fresh and cold. It's an experience. It's a whole dinner and a show. Visual, olfactory, taste buds, it's so much fun. How many people are at this dinner? This could get a little uh, pricey. It's not. It's eight people. So if I figured if Can I... Can I point out who was not invited? Oh, no. <laughs> Any of your quote-unquote best friends here at the show. But it's Bobby's birthday. This it, Listen, if this was Look, my no, birthday Bobby, dinner... Bobby owes me probably multiple nice dinners based on the stuff I convince you not to do on this show. Um, you couldn't convince ally. me not to sell my house. I think he probably has some issues with you right now. I tried, though. I'm almost always on his side, with the exception of really the Boston Red Sox, which is a character flaw. It's fine. It's not my problem. It's his problem. But overall, we are allies here. So I don't know. We just keep giving and giving and giving to you, Christine, all these invitations and opportunities to cookie. And then she, 
occasionally has things that actually sound appealing that she's planning, never an invite, never, ever, ever. Not, I'm not only speaking on behalf of me, one of your alleged best friends, but your other best friends here at the show. No Danny, no Maxie, who you were close with for such a long time, and not even YY the Clown. Imagine what he could do at a birthday party. You know. Actually, Maxie texted me today, and I didn't know the number. And I go, who is this? He goes, really? Did you delete him from your phone? I don't once? know why his name did not come up. I have no it was clue. like, doesn't work for me anymore. He's gone. Maxie, dead to me. Keep this in mind, Dan. If you leave, you're out of her life. Actually, I shouldn't say that because that's an incentive to leave. <laughs> you don't like that? So anyway, you're going to have some – the point is – Yes, let's get back to the point. You're going to have some David Burke food. We love us some David Burke. Bobby is also, like you, a big uh, – those chef shows. A foodie. Uh, and the a, chef, he loves those. Well, he's he's a cook himself. Oh, the best. The best. Um, he's even getting Me- – Megan watches that junior chef, master chef. Mm-hmm. She has her favorite chef. Oh, is that with the British guy who yells at people but not the Gordon kids? Gordon Ramsay. Yeah, Gordon Ramsay. He's mean. Is he mean to the kids? Not as mean. He's not cursing, but he is kind of mean to them. He makes them cry. It's kind of rude. Did you make any children cry when you were a failed class mother? <laughs> or is that just adults that you pissed off? I don't even want to talk about this. I, oh, God, I messed up again. Did you? Wait, how are you still on the job? Because I offered a while back for this pool party that I assumed was on a weekend. And I don't know why I assumed that. I'm a working mother. Why would we have a pool party during the week? (laughs) And so you've had to... Cancel. Cancel the party or cancel your involvement? Cancel my involvement. And I had to find another mother to take my daughter or she can't go. Oh, I'm sure that other mother was thrilled with you. This is the same school, same class? Same school, same exactly. Well, no, least... they're in the same class together because the school is small. It's the same moms till eighth you grade. You are guaranteeing that you will never have to do any of this stuff again. That's the upside here. By being this bad at it, they're like, don't even put her on the emails. Who makes a pool party for during the week? Well, is school ending? Yeah, it's the last day yeah, of school. That would be it. We used to do that. That's the thing. I have to work. That's fine. But you volunteered for it. I I just assume. Have you scheduled the birthday dinner for a weekend, Christine? Yes, but uh, I, I want to make I want to make sure that it's not like oh wait oh this reservation's on a Tuesday at four p.m. It is a Saturday night, but I do feel bad. It is Father's Day weekend. So oh, now, that's fine. You roll it all into one thing for him, right? But now everybody that's invited has to get up early to get home for their Father's Day. Well, what they can really do is go straight home. And get their dad's want steak, Omaha Steaks package, and grill using the promo code Guy Benson, all one word, at omahasteaks.com, sponsoring the podcast until Father's Day. We've got a few days left on this. Into next week, nine to nine bucks, 16 entrees, four desserts. You like that transition? Man, I just launched right into that. Man, you're good. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk more about it tomorrow because I actually do want to talk about that. But omahasteaks.com. Guy Benson, all one word, the code, 99 bucks for that special Father's Day deal.
Are you getting one for Bobby? Have you gotten one for Bobby? Uh, we're getting one for Bobby's dad. I think actually that's going to be Bobby's Father's Day because you know Bobby. Bobby used to work there. We will talk about this. Yes, this is a key detail. part of the story. Okay, mm-hmm. we got to run. I'm getting ready for Gutfeld, which tapes in just a little while. Sounds like it should be a very fun show tonight. Hope you'll watch 11 p.m. Eastern, Fox News Channel, back here on the radio from New York tomorrow. Good night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.